0: So we are jumping back into this series, Love Right Where You Are, and the series we're in at the moment is in the ancient letter of First Peter in the New Testament. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to open up to First Peter chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 8 to 12 today. Um, yeah, whether you're here at Botany or in Hastings, a heart show in this place, kia ora to you guys, listening on the internet, driving in your car wherever you are, don't turn in your Bible if you're driving in your car though, that's not a helpful idea. Um, but for the rest of us, we are looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12 in this um, letter, this old letter from one of Jesus' most um, important followers, one of his key 12 apostles, uh, Simon Peter. And Peter was writing about 30 years after he walked with Jesus to a group of churches in what we now call modern Turkey. And the key idea that I keep coming back to quite deliberately, the key idea that Peter is writing about in this letter... Uh, Came to us in chapter 2, middle of chapter 2, verse 12, where he wrote, Live such good lives among people who don't know Jesus that even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they might see your good deeds and praise or glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, what Peter is going for is the idea that followers of Jesus who know and feel secure in God's love for them in Christ knowing that they are chosen and dearly loved, which was the first part of his letter, will now live such good lives as a result of that here on earth that other people, even though they may malign them and laugh at them and even persecute them, would look at at the lives of Christ followers and go, wow, there's something there that that I want, that, that I see that's attractive. Um, In fact, it's been really cool. Just this last month, I was having a conversation with someone in our church who um, ended up bringing a work colleague with them to church for the first time in that person's life. And the reason they wanted to come to church is because this particular person who comes to Botany Life, their colleague said to them, there's something in your life that I find attractive. There's something about the way you live. That's what I want. Can I come to church with you? And that is exactly what Peter is calling for that we would just live our lives and walk with Jesus and be so um, responsive to his love and grace in our lives that other people outside of the family of God look at us and go, that's what I want. And that's really the key idea of Peter's letter. Live good lives for the glory of God. That's what he's on about. And what we've seen in the last few weeks is that Peter has taken this idea, this main umbrella concept of living good lives And he's unfolded that in a whole bunch of different scenarios. He's talked about living good lives as citizens in our society. He's talked about living good lives as slaves or servants, which for us would be our workplace. Last week we saw he talked about living good lives as wives and as husbands in the marriage relationship. So he's given the key command, live good lives, live an attractive life, live a beautiful life for the glory of God. And then he's gone through different scenarios and tried to paint us a picture of what that would look like like practically as a citizen or as a servant or as a spouse. Now we come to chapter 3 verse 8 and we read these words at the very beginning of verse 8, if you've got it open there. Finally, all of you. And what he's now doing is he's drawing all of these ideas in together in a summary. What we're looking at today is his summary of what this good life is going to look like. So he he says, finally, which is not finally the end of the letter. This is not him saying, I'm now coming to the end of the letter. It would almost be better if that was translated in summary. So he's gone, live great lives as citizens and as servants and as spouses. In other words, let me sum this up. For all of you. He could have kept going with other scenarios. He's could, he could have gone, live good lives like this in your sports club, and live good lives as friends, and live good lives as parents. He could have kept going through other different scenarios in our lives, but instead he's done the three scenarios, and now he's going, right. So in summary, let me pull it all together. All of you are to live like this. And then the description we've got here in verses 8 to 12 is his summary, his pulling it all together. In essence, what Peter's doing is he's answering this question. If followers of Jesus are called to live good, attractive, beautiful lives, that's what chapter 2 verse 12 is saying, the key concept. If we're called to live these attractive and beautiful lives in this world for God's glory, What in the world does that look like? And that's the key idea that Peter's going after. He's painted a few different pictures of what this looks like in different scenarios, but now he's summarizing it and pulling it all together and trying to give us a picture of what this attractive and good life might look like for us. And there's numerous numbers of ways we could pull apart this passage and describe it for us. But what I want to do is talk about four key areas of life, four quadrants to our lives. And I want to walk through this passage and show us that what Peter is talking about is a beautiful and attractive life in four different key characteristics of our lives. Before we jump in, though, I want us to understand one key idea. And this really is the big idea for today that we really need to understand that's so important. That the call for us to live good lives is actually a call for us to live like Jesus. Because what Peter's going to describe in this summary passage is really the life of Christ. He's going to paint a picture for us of what Jesus looks like. And for us to live a good life, an attractive life, a beautiful life that glorifies God is really to just live more and more like Jesus, and to let Jesus' life through his spirit come more and more through and into our lives. And so that's what we're going to see. And so as we walk through these four quadrants today, these four different aspects or parts to our lives, I actually want to pause each time and, and remind us, because it will be a reminder for most of us, just remind us of how Jesus exemplified that particular character trait so beautifully. And then invite us to reflect on that and think about that. So, so let's start with verse 8. The first quadrant that I want to talk about is our minds. That part of living a, a beautiful and attractive life for the glory of God comes down to our minds. So in verse 8... Peter gives a list of virtues, and I'm going to put it up on the screen for us to see this. There's five virtues, and he's actually ordered the list quite carefully. He says, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and be humble. And what uh, scholars and commentators suggest here is that he's actually done this list quite carefully so that when, it's, um, when you look at it, there's kind of a symmetry to it. It's called a chiasm, based on the Greek word uh, letter, key, which is an X. So it's kind of an X shape, so that the focus ends up being in the middle trait, the, the central quality, which is to have brotherly love for each other. But what they also point out is that the the top... And the bottom traits, to be like-minded and to be humble kind of go together. Those are kind of traits around our minds, whereas the middle three are more about our hearts, which is the second quadrant. But the idea, they suggest, is that being like-minded and be humble go together. And what Peter's talking about at the front and the end of this virtue list is having a humble and like-minded way of thinking. So what does he mean by that? That first word, like-minded, is a unique word. It's used nowhere else in the Greek New Testament. In fact, Peter may well have made it up because it's actually two words that he kind of rams together to create something new. And the the word really means simply to have the same mind, to be in agreement with each other. And I think what he's talking about here, that verse 8 is a little bit more focused on us within the church as fellow Christians And then verses 9 to 12 are a little bit more focused on on outside of the community of faith to others. It's not an exact thing, but it's a little bit more like that. So when he's saying we're to be like-minded, he's meaning we're to be in agreement with each other. that, That Christians are to be in unity on the core truths of the faith. Now, if you remember here, he's described the, the readers to this letter with some words like foreigners and exiles. He's got across this idea that if we're followers of Jesus, our real home is actually heaven. It's with God. And that means when we live as we live our lives out here on earth as followers of Jesus, we almost don't quite fit in the society we're in anymore. There's almost a sense that at times we're going to feel like we're not quite at home. And whether that's at at high school or whether that's in the workplace or whether that's at family gatherings where, where your family isn't all Christ followers, there are times where the way people talk and the jokes they tell and the stuff they talk about and the values they exhibit, it just doesn't feel like we quite connect with that, that we're not completely at home. We're aliens is the older way of translating this idea. And one of the temptations as we've seen for people who feel like they're foreigners or aliens in this world, is that sometimes there's a real temptation to just fit in. And so for these early Christians and for us today, one of the temptations we face, feeling that slight disconnect with the community around us because of our faith, is to actually just let some of our beliefs slide. It's to just subtly change some of what we stand for. Is to allow some of our core truths to just erode a little bit. And I think when Peter's saying here, right up front, be like-minded, he's saying, make sure you stay in agreement with each other about what's true, about the core of our faith. There's a little phrase that gets used a few different times in the New Testament that I really love, and I think it fits here. It's the idea of holding firmly. And so Peter will write to the Philippians and say, sorry, Paul will write to the Philippians and say, hold firmly to the word of life. Later he'll talk to Titus about elders who hold firmly to the trustworthy message. Or to the writer to the Hebrews we will talk about holding firmly to the faith we profess. The idea is that we hold on to the truths and we agree together as God's people that this is is true. And Peter's not here talking about some of the more periphery or secondary issues where uh, Christians who love Jesus have slightly different views on what the Bible says. What he's talking about here is the primary issues, the core of the Christian faith. That God is the creator of this world, that human beings are fallen because of our sin and rebellion against him. That Jesus is God in human flesh who came to live the life we couldn't live and to die for our sins. And that Jesus rose physically from the dead. And he, he's ascended to heaven, he's coming back, and he sent us his spirit. It's those core truths. And I think what Peter's saying here is make sure you don't just, out of a desire to fit into the community or society around you, don't start giving up on the core truths that you believe in. Be in agreement on these things and hold fast to them. But he says, coming back to this verse, do that with Humility do that with humility we all know what humility means don't we it's a lack of pride it's a lack of conceit it's not getting puffed up not thinking more of ourselves or giving uh, the attitude or the impression that we give think think more of ourselves and it's the idea i think when when Peter's talking about this idea of our minds, part of what it means to live a good life, I think what he's talking is, is what I want to term today humble orthodoxy. Now, I've stolen that phrase uh, from a book, but the idea of orthodoxy is the opposite of heresy. Orthodoxy is staying and holding firm to these core truths of the Christian faith, but it's doing it with humility. And I got that phrasing from a little book that I bought a couple of years ago in my library. It's only four chapters long, by a pastor in, in the D.C. area of the States called Joshua Harris. He's written a few books, more on dating, actually, than anything else. But this is this beautiful little book that he calls Humble Orthodoxy. And what he means by that is this, that Christians need to have a strong commitment to sound doctrine. We need to be courageous in our stand for biblical truth, but we also need to be gracious in our words and our interaction with other people. And what he points out is that sometimes or many times, Christians can stand firm but be real jerks about it or very argumentative about it. Or, because we're so gracious and humble, we let the truth slide. And what he's arguing for is, no, we have to actually be both of these things. And so he asks this great question, do we have to choose between kindness and a zeal for truth? And what he says in his book is no. Does embracing deeply held beliefs require that we let go of humility? No. But what he argues for is is what Paul uh, said to his protege, Timothy. Paul, writing to him, said, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, on one hand, we're to stand fast and hold firm to the Christian faith and what the Bible says, but we're to do that with a deep humility and graciousness. So when we're interacting with one another over some of those secondary issues, we do it with grace and we do it with humility. And when we're interacting with people around us about questions of worldview and ethics and what's right and wrong in this postmodern world and people disagree vehemently with how Christians stand on particular issues, we respond and we hold to the truth of the Bible, but we do it with grace and we do it with gentleness and we do it with humility. That's what uh, I think Peter's driving at and that's what I think Joshua Harris meant with this beautiful term of humble orthodoxy. That, I think, is part of a beautiful life, that we hold on to truth. We don't give up what God has said. We don't move away from what the Bible clearly teaches. But we, we, we teach that and we explain that and we uh, talk with people with a graciousness and a humility. And when you stop and think about it, that was Jesus, wasn't it? Jesus knew what he believed. Jesus was not afraid to proclaim the truth of God to people. But the way he interacted with people, the way he talked with people, there was a beautiful gentleness and humility about him. I think, for example, when I was thinking about this and thinking where you see this in the life of Jesus, my my mind immediately went to the story in John's Gospel, chapter 4, where Jesus is interacting with a woman from Samaria. And he's sitting at the well outside of her village, and she comes out to draw water in the middle of the day, which was highly unusual because it was stinking hot. The only reason she'd be coming out to the well in the middle of the day was because she didn't want to draw water when all of the other women of the village were there. So she was an outsider. She was ostracized. You find out later in that story part of the reason she may be ostracized is is because she is now uh, living with a guy instead of being married to him, which was while now common in our world, that was very foreign back then, even in the Samaritan culture. And yet Jesus sits at this well and he interacts with this woman. Which was surprising because of her gender and her ethnicity. But he engages her in a conversation. And he asks her questions. And he interacts with her. And and he answers her questions about places of worship and issues of theology. And he takes her through this conversation to the point where he reveals his identity to her as the Messiah. But he does it beautifully and gently and humbly. Because that's Jesus. Jesus. I put up this passage, this, these verses last week in talking on marriage. But I think this fits again. This is Jesus in my favourite words that he ever said Come to me, he says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. And he was gentle and humble in heart. And if we're thinking, and Peter's here trying to pull a summary together, what does it look like to live a good and attractive and beautiful life that glorifies God? It means to be like Jesus. It means to hold to truth, but to do it with with gentleness and with humility. That's humble orthodoxy. That's that's part of what an attractive and beautiful life is meant to look like. So I want to pause for a minute, and I want to do this for each quadrant, but I I want to just throw a couple of questions out there and just give you a few seconds to stop and reflect and look at your life. So these are the first questions. To what extent do I hold firmly to biblical beliefs and truths in a world that denies them? To what extent am I feeding my mind and convictions through the regular reading of God's Word? And to what extent... Do I hold firmly to the faith with a deep humility and gentleness? I just want to pause and I want to give you just a few seconds to allow the Holy Spirit just to reflect on that with you and for you to just respond to him. So that's our minds. The second part of this, then the second quadrant, comes from the rest of verse 8, These, this middle section of, on this list, items 2 and 3 and 4, where Peter says, be sympathetic and love one another and be compassionate. To be sympathetic is to feel for someone, is to enter into the feelings of someone else, Paul would write to the Romans that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and we are to weep with those who weep. That, that's what sympathy looks like. To be compassionate is to be kind-hearted, to have a, a tender heart towards someone else. Even um, in the New Testament, uh, to have a forgiving heart is kind of wrapped up in that kind of concept. And then this middle one here, love one another, actually uses There's there's a few different words in the Greek language for love. You may have heard of some differences between those. Agape love is often talked about as the the main or the most godlike version of love. Um, There's not as much stark difference as maybe some people indicate. But this is not agape. This is phileo, which uh, has the idea of a brotherly love. So it's almost the idea here of a family love or uh, the idea of loyalty towards one another. So it's the sense of of being sympathetic and loyal and compassionate, both towards one another within the family of God, but also letting that flow over into the lives of other people around us. Um, On Friday night, the um, altar youth um, were looking at the question, what is love, in a little series that they're doing, um, this term, what is love, and Robin Byrne leading that discussion with them on Friday night was saying that in the world that we live in today, love is often talked about almost exclusively as an emotion. So love is a, is a feeling. Love is something you fall into and fall out of and you ride this emotional wave. That's what love is. But biblically, what they were talking about at altar is that actually in the Bible, love is, love is not a feeling. Love is a verb. Love is something you do. Love is the, the choice that you will act on behalf of someone else. Now, often that is driven by feelings. And the feelings are these ones. The idea of sympathy and entering into someone else's pain, the idea of a loyal, brotherly love, the idea of compassion and tenderheartedness. But ultimately, in Scripture, the feelings of our heart actually lead us to act for someone and to do, because love is is a verb. But that, that idea, then, means that we're talking in the second quadrant about our hearts, to live a, a, a beautiful life, an attractive life for the glory of God doesn't just mean our, our minds, um, minds that are linked to a humble orthodoxy, but have hearts that beat with a heartfelt compassion, that are moved by people's pain, that care about other people, that, that ends up resulting in, in action on behalf of that person in our life. And this is all over um, the Bible. Just one passage from Paul's writing in Colossians 3. Um, It says, he wrote, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Don't miss that. That's exactly what Peter's done in his letter. He started with the idea, you are chosen if you're a follower of Jesus. You are deeply loved by God in Christ. Therefore, we're meant to live like this. And that's what uh, Paul's doing here. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Now, clothe yourselves. And here come all these similar words, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. This is all over the New Testament. We are to be people of heartfelt compassion. We are to be people whose, whose sympathy is with the hurting, who, who tries to help um, the struggling, whose, whose heart goes out to the weak and who therefore act in loving ways towards them to meet people's needs and ultimately to bring people to the faith in Jesus. And, of course, you look back at the life of Jesus. So if we're talking about an attractive and beautiful life, this was Christ, wasn't it? I was allowing my mind to, to go through some of the stories in the Gospels where Jesus showed this heartfelt compassion. There's a story in Matthew 9 that we looked at earlier this year where Jesus looked out across the crowds and, and Matthew writes, and he had compassion for them like a shepherd has for lost sheep. Or you go to the stories of the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus does this miracle of feeding people who are hungry. And all of the gospel writers include that story. And most of them say, when Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion for them. And that's why he, he broke the, the, the bread and, and the, the loaves and the fishes and multiplied them and fed people. He, he loved in action, but he was, he, that was motivated by this compassion for people. Or well, there's this beautiful story in Luke's Gospel that I reread this morning, where a woman who had previously lost her husband, she was a widow, had now lost her only son. He, he was dead. And Jesus and his disciples came into their little village called Nain, just as the funeral procession was heading out of the village to go uh, put the the body of her only son into a sepulcher. And Jesus comes along and Luke says his heart went out to this woman. And he stops the funeral procession. And he says beautiful words of kindness to her. And he raises her son from the dead. And what's emphasised time and time again is not only Jesus doing loving actions and deeds towards people, but that being motivated by this deep love and compassion for them. Isaiah had prophesied that hundreds of years earlier. In Isaiah 42, he had said, Here is my servant, the Messiah, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him, and he'll bring justice to the nations. And then I love verse 3 of Isaiah 42. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. Two beautiful images of a, a reed and a flame on a candle. And the reed's almost broken. And, and the flames flickering and almost gone out. And the idea is that this, this Messiah who will come won't break bruised reeds, but instead he'll strengthen them. And won't, won't snuff out a smoldering wick. Instead, he'll breathe on it and bring life back. It's a beautiful picture of compassion. and Matthew picks up this passage and he quotes it in his gospel about Jesus and says, "This is him. And if we're going to live attractive and beautiful lives for the glory of God, what does that look like? It looks like Jesus. It looks like the heart of Jesus, a heart of compassion, a heart of sympathy for people. So let me just throw some more questions for us to reflect on together. To what extent do I sympathize with the pain of others versus brushing off their struggles? To what extent am I loyal and committed to others, this idea of brotherly love, especially when they're in need? And to what extent do I break bruised reeds with my thoughtlessness instead of my hearing? I just want to give you a few seconds just to sit and reflect on those questions before God. Third quadrant, then, is our mouths. Having done this initial list of virtues in verse 8 and verses 9 and following what what Peter now does, he almost turns from a bit more of a focus within the community of faith now outwardly. And what he does in verse 9 is he actually paraphrases the teaching of Jesus. Verse 9 reads, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing, or I would actually go different to that, because to this you were called because you have inherited a blessing. I think is what he's saying. But what Peter's doing here is he's picking up the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain in Matthew and in Luke, respectively, where Jesus said in Luke's version of it, uh, to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you bless those who curse you, pray for those who ill-treat you, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. This is often called the, the law of non-retaliation, Jesus teaching on not retaliating when people are, are hurtful to us. But actually Jesus is teaching something way more radical than that. Because to, to not retaliate would mean that when someone is, is horrible to you, when someone says something mean to you, when, when someone lashes out at you with their words or with their actions, when someone mistreats you, to not retaliate to, means that you don't respond with harshness. It means you, you don't uh, take action against them. It means you don't hit them back if they've hit you. That, that's non-retaliation. But Jesus is commanding more than not retaliating. Jesus is saying retaliate with the opposite. Jesus is saying if someone hurts you, you treat them with kindness. If someone uses words that cause you pain, you respond with words of kindness that heal. If someone treats you with evil, you treat them with good. It's more than just don't retaliate. It's more than you respond in the opposite way for them. That is so utterly radical that it actually captivated the early church. And if you actually read through the New Testament, what you find is that the New Testament writers pick this up again and again and again because it's so radical. But this is what Jesus calls his followers to do. And what Peter does is he picks up this idea that he's now kind of paraphrased in verse 9, and he talks about two key ways that we're to do that. In, in the next verses 10 to 12. And he does that by quoting one of the Psalms of David, Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is actually, actually comes from early in King David's life when he is on the run for his life. King Saul, the first king of Israel, is wanting to kill David because he knows David's been anointed to be the next king. So Saul is hunting for David. He wants to, he wants to kill him. So David's on the run for his life with an enemy who wants to slay him. And he writes Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 is is a description of this kind of life that Jesus would talk about. Returning evil with good. Responding to hurt with blessing. And there's two key ways. The first way that that Peter's going after is what uh, David sung about, which is in, in verse 10 here of 1 Peter 3. It says, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. So one of the the ways that we return evil with good, one of the ways we live an attractive life is with our mouths, that we don't retaliate. In fact, verse 9, Peter had said, we do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Um, One other way to translate that could be, we don't return abuse with abuse. And so what Peter's talking about here, and by quoting David's psalm, is he's talking about the way we speak. And saying if we're followers of Jesus, part of an attractive and beautiful life is watching our words, and even when we are mistreated, and even when people gossip behind our backs, or when people look us in the eye and say incredibly hurtful things, not only do we not retaliate, which is hard enough, we actually return words that are kind and good. The idea of retaliation, of not retaliating, sorry, even that's pretty tough, but that's through the Bible. Uh, Psalm 141, for example, set a guard on my mouth, Yahweh, keep watch over the door of my lips. I think that's a great prayer. God, would you just help me not say something stupid? Because I was thinking, man, if I had a dollar... For every time in my life, I've said something that I later regretted. I think I could buy a house in Auckland on that money. Because there's so many times in my life where I have said something or made a statement or cracked a sarcastic joke or said something hurtful, and then later on, weeks or days or even minutes later, where I've regretted that and wished I could take in those words back. Well, Proverbs 12, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. That's what Peter's calling for. What does a beautiful life look like? What does an attractive life that glorifies God actually look like? It looks like people, Christ followers, who use good words, who even when abused and insulted, repay evil with a blessing and with good. He's talking about what I want to call today, gracious life words. The idea of grace, of course, is unmerited favor. So we talk about grace from God, meaning that we've never deserved the relationship we get to have with him through Jesus. We've never earned that. We've never merited that. We can not can never earn it. We can never repay God for what he's done. His grace in our lives is something we don't deserve, Well, that's what Peter's calling for with our words, isn't it? To hear hurtful words and to repay them with kind words, that's an act of grace. Where someone doesn't deserve that, they deserve to get something back, and we choose to instead give grace. And what we give them is what I'm calling here life words. That's a phrase that comes from um, Christian psychologist Larry Crabb. He talks about our words can be death words or life words. I really love the imagery of that. And I think what Peter's calling us to do here is to bring life words, words that build up, words that heal, as an act of grace, even when the person doesn't deserve it. So, Larry Crabb, writing about this, says, God intends that we be people who use words to encourage one another. And I would add to that, encourage others who don't even deserve it. A well timed word has the power. To urge a runner to finish the race. To rekindle hope when despair has set in. To renew confidence when problems have the upper hand. My friend Jonathan Dove, who's the pastor of Green Lane Christian Centre, talks about the way that our words can graffiti someone else's soul. I I love the imagery of that. That when we return insult with insult, when we respond viciously when someone says harsh words to us, it's like we've opened a can of spray paint and we're graffitiing their soul. And instead of that, Peter says, we're to bring gracious words of life. When I think about Jesus in this regard, what springs to my mind is the way that Jesus responded When he was arrested, he was beaten, the Gospels tell us. He was blindfolded and the soldiers punched him and said, tell us, prophet, who who hit you? He was mocked. He was spat on. He had his beard ripped out from his cheeks. And what did he say? Actually, he didn't say anything. Peter's already referred to that earlier in his letter when he wrote, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And instead, what you find is that he doesn't respond to them at all until they've taken him to a hill outside of the city of Jerusalem and they have nailed him to a cross and as he's hanging there, then he speaks. He speaks. And he says these words. That's an attractive and beautiful life. So, I just ask us, to what extent do I refuse to retaliate to harsh words from others? To what extent do I use words to build up and to bring life, even when I've been mistreated? And following the example of Jesus that we just saw, to what extent do I consistently pray for the good of people who have hurt me? Just give you a few seconds to think those through. Our minds, our hearts, our mouths, and finally, our hands. Part of living an attractive and beautiful life for the glory of God is loving good deeds. That's what Jesus was talking about in all of that talk in in Luke 6 about don't retaliate, don't give back evil for evil. As part of that, he, he taught this further on from the passage that I quoted earlier. He said, if someone slaps you on one cheek, you turn to him the other one also. If someone takes your coat, then don't withhold your shirt. Give them your shirt as well as your coat. Give to everyone who asks you. If anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is radical talk. This is absurd. Who lives like this? If someone steals your coat, then give them something else to go with it that matches nicely. If someone has taken what belongs to you, don't demand it back. We just had our car stolen this week. The little white car that our kids get to drive. Someone flogged it from the Pamua station. Jesus tells us to let him have it. To <laughs> be honest, if you saw the white car, that's not very hard. <laughs> but man, you think about that. That is, that is a completely radical life. But see, Jesus called his followers to live lives of radical good deeds and radical generosity and radical service. Jesus said in in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you're the light of the world. You're like a town on a hill that can't be hidden. You're like a a light that you like to light the house so you never put a bowl on it. So let your light shine. How do we do that? Well, he says, let your light shine so that people would see your good deeds. See, we are meant to live out our faith in Jesus in really practical and generous and serving kinds of ways that glorify God. We are to allow our hands to reach out and love people. That can be as simple as writing someone a card of encouragement. It could be as simple as making someone a meal. It could be as simple as giving someone who is struggling financially a gift. It could be just multiple small ways. It could be something as big as a community project together as a church family, where we come into a school like this and we bless them in the name of Christ. That's the kind of life Jesus was talking about. That's part of what it means to live. When I think about the way Jesus did this and all of the miracles, the acts of love that he did for people, what I'm most drawn to was not a miracle. There was this moment on the night that he would be betrayed, where he gathered with his 12 closest followers to celebrate Passover. And as they're sitting around and eating the meal together, no one has washed the feet, uh, washed the dust off their feet because that was the, the lowest slave's role. And so when no one else is going to do it, Jesus got up and did it. Must have been one of the most awkward moments for those 12 men. And at the end of it, Jesus said these words, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, but I, if I, your teacher and Lord, can wash your feet, then you should go wash one another's feet. I've set you an example. What most blows me away from that whole story, though, is not that the king of heaven is washing the feet of 12 guys. What blows me away is that he's washing the feet of one guy. Because that night at that Passover meal, sitting right next to him on his right-hand side in the place of honour is one of his disciples called Judas Iscariot. Judas has already agreed to betray Jesus. Judas has already negotiated the price with the chief priests. He's already got 30 pieces of silver sitting in his money belt right there. And here's the kicker. Jesus knows. John intimates this earlier in the chapter. He says the meal is in progress. And John specifically writes, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things in his hands. Jesus knew everything. And he got up from the meal, and he took off his clothing, and he washed the feet, beginning with the person in the place of honour. Knowing that in a few hours Judas would come and kiss him on the cheek, knowing that Judas was going to betray him and hand him over to the most excruciating death humanity has ever conceived, Jesus bowed before Judas and lovingly washed the dust off his feet as one final attempt to win back his heart. That's loving good deeds. That's the life of Jesus. And that's attractive. And that's what we're called to live. So for a final time, to what extent am I willing to do good to those who hurt me in the name of Jesus? To what extent do I willingly serve others in grubby and insignificant roles? And to what extent am I letting my light shine through acts of grace and kindness? Peter says, live such good lives that people see your good deeds and glorify God. What does that look like? What is a good, what is an attractive, what is a, a beautiful life look like? It looks like people with minds that are set with a humble orthodoxy, and with hearts that beat with a heartfelt compassion, and with mouths that speak gracious. Life words and with hands that perform loving deeds, because that is exactly how Jesus lived. The call to live good lives is a call to live like Jesus. This last couple of weeks, I have been rereading pieces of a really important book in my life. Before Botany Life was launched, Uh, One of the books that our interim leadership team read was a book called The Church of Irresistible Influence by a pastor named Robert Lewis. That was actually the book that we got the idea of community projects from. But it's a book trying to describe this kind of life, an attractive and beautiful life lived for God, a life where people would see and be drawn to Jesus in us. Robert Lewis writes that the impetus for this kind of becoming this kind of church and becoming this kind of person, actually came out of a time where he was, went to one of the local shopping malls in his area, he, he was a pastor in Arkansas, and he went into the shopping mall and he just started asking people, tell me, what do you think of church, what do you think of Christians, you know, just asking different people. And he got a whole variety of answers in this informal survey that he did, but it was one answer from a teenage kid that stopped him in his tracks. Went up to this teenage boy and just said, What do you think of the church? The guy gave him a four word answer The church is crap and walked off. Just a few sentences on, Robert Lewis writes this Where's the love of God we talk about? Where is the transforming power of Christ? Changed lives, the selfless giving, the good works. While the world waits to see it in our communities, the church is consumed about talking about it in their sanctuaries. And what he pleads for in this book, and what I think Peter is pleading for here, is that we would stop just talking about it and start living it more and more in our minds and in our hearts and in our words and in our deeds. That we would live good lives that look more and more like Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you lived exactly this kind of life. This morning we've kind of traversed a little bit back and forward through the Gospels and we've looked at the way you lived and listened to your words and looked at your heartbeat and watched your deeds of love and caring, your humility and gentleness, and we're in awe of you. We're so grateful that you are our saviour and our Lord. And Lord, we come face to face today with this realisation that to live a good and attractive and a beautiful life, what Peter's been challenging us to do is to look more and more like you. And Lord Jesus, I confess today that I feel woefully short of that. I want to say thank you today for your grace. That you accept and are excited by our meager efforts to look more like Jesus. Thank you that you don't rubbish us, but you encourage us and spur us on. And thank you too for your power. The power of your Holy Spirit transforming us from the inside out. Help us to lean more into you. Help us to feast more on your word. Help us to spur one another on. So that we would look like Jesus more and more. We long to live these beautiful and attractive lives that glorify you. So in the mess and brokenness of our lives today, just come and we bring our lives back to you again. We lay them before you as a fresh act of worship. As that woman in the Gospels came and shattered her jar of perfume and poured it on your feet, we pour out our lives to you, fresh in response to your beauty.